This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Gets towards sort of Shawshank Redemption territory for a while, right? But then it takes another twist. So, where you, I mean, where you, what's it? How did it come about? How did this? What was the genesis? Well, of? the genesis of it was, uh, I suppose, rooted in in my own life. In that, in the 1990s, uh, a man uh, started going around pretending to be me, and. Uh, um, he didn't look anything like me, <laughs> but those was in the, that was in the days when I was just a name on the end of some writing credits. You know, I, I wasn't on TV panel shows or anything. Um, and I won't give you the details it, it, because it was a pain in the backside. This guy pretended to be me. It was actually quite unsettling. But one of the ways I did protected myself is that I would tell as many people as possible that there was this bloke going around pretending to be me. And, um, and what was interesting about that experience was that when I told people about it, quite often they would come back with another story, either about themselves or about someone they knew, um, because you can pretend to be anybody. Um, you know, there's no law against pretending to be someone unless you then go on to commit an offence like try and defraud somebody or something like that. So, um, so I suddenly realised that for quite a few fantasists, the world is a bit of an adventure playground, you know. So I thought that got, I got interested in that kind of personality, and um, and then I was reading through um, a book of old words, you know, and uh, there was a word for someone who would offer to testify for you as a witness, and that got me thinking. And then I had this sort of story brewing in my head, so I, I wrote it as a play, and it was the wrong shape for a play. It was the wrong size. It didn't quite work as a play. So then I sort of put it to one side and then I gradually started expanding it into a novel and it only took me 17 years. <laughs> so but that was partly because I was fitting it in, you know, with right. other projects. Um, also, you know, it's not that I'm a very slow <laughs> writer. I do write by hand, you know, in manuscript, but I'm not that slow. Um, so the story, but what was lovely about doing a novel is that you very rarely get to do long form in my line of work, you know, on TV or radio or, or, or a film. If you, you know, it's 90 minutes max. Uh, the only time I've ever got to do long form, I, I did a series for Channel 4 years ago, which was seven one hours, which was fantastic. But, but what was lovely about doing the novel is that around the middle, I got into this happy state where I didn't know where the story was going to take. Keith, the central character. Uh, I wasn't even sure where he was going to end up. And I found that really uh, interesting. And I think it, it forces you into sort of original choices. And so uh, it was, you know, I really enjoyed writing it. I hope you'd enjoy reading it, but <laughs> I did enjoy it. I wondered how, were you sort of settling scores with your, your portraits of the colleagues that the, your central character, who's an actor, yes, soap opera actor, or right, being serious actor, uh, he doesn't think a great deal of the sort of you know there's ruthless producers, and yes. hysterical actors, and yes, the business doesn't come out terribly well. So I wondered how many sort of real life models there were, thinly disguised in the book. Right. Well, <laughs> when we when we did chop the dead donkey, the lawyer sat us down and said. Right, this series, it looks like it's going to be successful. If anybody ever asks you 
who is a character based on, you reply they're not based on anybody. <laughs> All right. And they weren't. They, they actually weren't. But we had to always do that. And this is, um, they're not based on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they, no, they really aren't. Uh, and I mean, there is one hysterical actor and one ruthless producer, mm. you know, but the vast, I mean, uh, to be fair to actors, they get portrayed as these, you know, fragile mm -hmm. um, snowflake lovies. I mean, in, in fact, the polar opposite is true. To have the mental toughness to put yourself up for auditions and, you know, imagine those of you who aren't actors, imagine if, you know, as part of your job was walking in, you know, and people look at you, and sometimes, of course, people decide they don't like it, they just don't like the look of an actor, you know, and that's it. It's over for that actor in that audition. So I think um, it would be unfair to deduce uh, too much. <coughs> I mean, I've loved being in the business, and I've only encountered about two monsters in my whole yes. time, you know. Called... <laughs> Well, one of them was Zsa Zsa Gabor, so <laughs> that's fine, I don't mind. I didn't know you worked with Zsa Zsa. <laughs> uh, for 20 minutes. <laughs> but what minutes they were. And yeah. <laughs> but I've she was horrible. I've I know you shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but I'm prepared to make an exception. <laughs> well, I've, I've talked to uh, actors who uh, appear in continuing series, which I think is the posh name for, mm -hmm. for soap opera. And it is bloody hard work. I yeah. Mean, you don't get rehearsal as an unknown concept. Oh, oh, and I think, you know, I mean, Keith, the central character, Kevin, rather, the central character, is in a, a, a bad place mm. at the start of this story. And I think part of it is that he's done, he's, he's had this relentless long run. Um, and occasionally, I remember auditioning somebody who had been um, an actor for a long time in a very well-known soap. And he just came in, he just looked like he'd been in a car crash. You know, the, the sheer stress of the, the relentlessness of the schedule. And I worked with um, Mike Reed. You remember Mike Reed? Mm -hmm. He was such a lovely, wonderful man. And while we were filming this thing, he got an offer to go back into EastEnders. And he was really, Mike found that schedule very punishing. Anyway, one day I'm in my office and the phone rings. And Mike says, it's me. I said, oh, right. hi, mate. He says, do you remember we had a conversation about whether I should go back into EastEnders? I said, yeah. He said, and you said something like, I didn't think it would do any harm. And I didn't remember saying that, but... <laughs> so I said, yeah. He said, well... He said, I went back in on three conditions. He said, one, that I don't work such a punishing schedule. Two, that they look favourably on ideas that I bring them. And three that my storylines are not so depressing. <laughs> he said, I've just worked 31 days out of the last 33. He said, I've given them seven scripts to look at. They haven't responded to one of them. And I've just knocked down Tiffany on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I, I think, you know, part of his problem, part of Kevin's problem is that he, you know, he's kind of lost touch with his talent because he's been in this factory, mm. you know, and he's sort of forgotten what it is to be creative and why he got into it in the first place. I mean, he plays a sort of a dirty den character. Yes. Is that fair, fair to say? And was what happened to Leslie Grantham, was that sort of, uh, indeed, the other 
people who's now behind bars for behavior, misbehavior yeah. in earlier decades. Does that, did that inspire you at well, all? Well, funny enough, until you just mentioned it, I'd forgotten what happened to Leslie Grantham. <laughs> for those of you who don't remember, Leslie Grantham uh, was kind of discovered, but then once the series became a hit, it, it was revealed mm. that he'd done time in prison for, for murder. Um, well, I started it um, around the turn of the century, so when I started, Jimmy Savile was still, uh, you At know, large. someone who some people thought was lovable. At about 75% of people thought was a bit creepy. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, so it now looks like a very topical piece because it looks like a piece about how all of the sort of um, celebrities or all the creative fraternity have been tarnished but or, or, or under suspicion, if you like. But... Um, when I was writing it, it, it wasn't really a factor. There was no Stuart Hall story. There was no Rolf Harris, no, no uh, Jimmy Savile. Well, I was going to, I'm, I'm pointing, trying to make you see how prescient you were, how you, yes. how you forecast. Telepathic. Exactly. <laughs> Don't deny it. Yeah, that can happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be careful. We were writing out numbered, uh, an awful lot of things that we would write because we'd say that'd be a funny episode, and then it would happen. And uh, I remember we did a... Uh, we did an episode very early on where, where Karen was told not to put the bolt across on the toilet door. They were going to a wedding. And she goes into the toilet and says, right, get, don't put the bolt across. And you hear the bolt go across. And, uh, and she's stuck in the toilet. You know, and she can't get it back. And there's a whole scene there. Anyway, on the Monday, you know, we write this scene. We think, oh, that's a funny scene. We, we go home for the weekend. <laughs> on the Monday morning, I come in and Guy, my writing partner's, you know, looking a bit crestfallen. I said, you all right? He says, yeah. He said, I had to break the door down yesterday. Because <laughs> <laughs> his son had done it. Spooky. Yeah, yeah. and another one we, we did, they got mice, and I got home, and, and uh, I was just kind of rearranging myself on my sofa and discovered that I'd actually sat on a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> so we began to, and I didn't know we had mice at the time. <laughs> so we did begin to wonder if there was some kind of prophetic curse. Mm. What was that story, the, the rocking horse winner? You know, yeah. Things like that, but, um, and how was the mouse? Was it a dead? Dead. <laughs> yeah. How did it, I mean, I sort of, when I was introducing the, the novel, it, uh, yeah. it sort of, lots of jokes, lots of gags. Yeah. But it, the tone becomes darker. And I wondered. Did you, were the gags there to kind of reassure yourself, give you a bit of insurance, but as you kind of uh, worked, delved further into the darker themes of the novel, or were you just, that's part of you, you have some jokes, sometimes dark features, you know, sometimes humorous features? Yeah. No, I, I always, um, you know, I would hope that the book is both funny and serious mm. at the same time, but that's how I've always approached everything. You know, funny and to get, you know, very like life, you know, because life doesn't bother to divide itself up into genres, you know, and it's a problem because um, we live in such a marketing led world, you know, that um, people want you to write one thing. It's got to be a straight drama or a mystery or, or a comedy. And, um, you know, I've always believed in uh, that they should all, that they can happen simultaneously. And the best piece is. You know, you see it a lot in American TV, you know, um, uh, something like Breaking Bad. So very funny scenes, very serious scenes, very exciting scenes. And they put it all in together. And, um, you know, and particularly with comedy, I mean, you know, 
very often the most comic, memorable moments happen at times of extreme crisis. Very often when you talk to somebody about some terrible ordeal, the thing they remember is the, the absurd comic moment. And the example I often cite is a friend of mine, Ian uh, Davidson, who's a writer, comedy writer, and he had a terrible week where he had two bereavements, two, two tragic accidents. And the second one, he was driving up north to go to the funeral. And it was a disaster. He had a puncture on the way up. He got out to change the tire. And uh, there was a storm. And so he was sopping wet. And he got to this town in Yorkshire, I think it was. And he was late. And he was dripping wet. And he, he, he fetched up at the undertaker's. And said, oh, I, uh, I'm terribly sorry I'm late. Is there any chance of, because the deceased have been laid out, and he says, could, it, could I see her one last time, please? I would just like to just, just see her. And the undertaker said, I, I'm awfully sorry, um, but, you know, with you at the crematorium. He said, no, listen, it's my fault. I should have set off earlier. I should have, you know, I should have, uh, you know, it's my own fault. I, know, I totally understand, but is there any possibility I could just don't want to just pay my respects and um, uh, the undertaker said ah, well I'm awfully sorry but we, we have actually just nailed down the coffin and Ian heard himself say no that's fine listen some other time <laughs> and <laughs> and it's comic uh, evidently but it's also very touching because he was in such a state he was so upset that, you know, his mouth had completely lost contact with his brain, which is what happens, you know. Um, I mean, the characters, you know, quite a lot of the jokes are in the dialogue. And very often, particularly when people are at work, if you listen to their dialogue, there are a lot of jokes. Because that's how people get through the day, you know. Um, so, uh, so I try to make it, you know, as, as natural as possible. I didn't sort of, I didn't consciously think, oh, I need a joke for reassurance, you know. I mean, were you attempting a satire of sort of modern mores of media manipulation and media misbehaviour? Well, I suppose there is an element of um, a satirisation of the kind of febrile atmosphere that we now have, you know. I mean, particularly with social media, which is a huge accelerant you know so so we do seem to have become a, a, a rather narcissistic self-obsessed society um we, we were probably always narcissistic and self-obsessed but um there's no doubt that the the speed and the the globalization of uh, of digital media has made us um slightly more hysterical mm. i think um, I mean, probably in time, we'll get through that once we work out how to use these media properly. But at the moment, it's ridiculous. And getting worse, too, Paul. Their behaviour is, you know, deteriorating. Well, I just think that we kind of get... I, I think probably the truth was that about 35% of the human race was people you didn't want to talk to. <laughs> you know, they were the people who in the old days would have been at the end of the bar in the saloon and you'd walk in... And every now and he'd say something, and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, just, it's Derek, don't talk to him, you know, don't get involved. And then what happened was uh, we gave them a megaphone <laughs> and they could all blather to everybody and each other. And, you know, so, so you've got this incessant dialogue uh, of people who formerly, you know, were probably quite marginalised and rightly so. Uh, that sounds very cynical, but I think 
you know, I think there is an element of that that uh, that that the attention seekers who previously would have been ignored are now harder to ignore. In the later stages of the book, I sense, I don't know if this is true or not, that there's a kind of contradictory impulse in you. You want to believe in idealism. Yes. But at the same time, you know too much of the world to be taken in by that. And I, what gives the book its tension, I think, is yeah. sort of debating with yourself a bit uh, yeah. towards the end. Well, I don't, true to say. Well, don't a lot of us? A lot of us spend our whole life doing that, mm. don't we? We, I mean, I mean, the important thing is not to, not to give up on people and not to give up on. I mean, it's very hard at the moment. We've got, you know, I mean, this is a book about a man who places himself at the mercy of a narcissistic fantasist, which is a mistake, um, as the people of America have just discovered. <laughs> so. Um, you know, so, but, uh, you know, there's no point in just throwing in the towel on the important things. I think it's important that people stay angry, if you like, you know, in a, in a constructive way. I mean, it's, it's why I think it's, it's going to be very interesting with Trump, because at the moment everyone says, oh, that's just like manna from heaven, Trump, isn't it? But already you can sense audiences getting trumped out, you know, they're kind of, oh. And because he does something stupid and absurd and ridiculous and upsetting and dangerous every day there's a danger of getting desensitized you know but it is important that people stay engaged and, and stay angry and in fact i've made a documentary about trump called inside donald trump and it's a podcast it's narrated by michael burke and it's worth listening to if only to hear michael burke coming out with some pretty absurd stuff but it's um yeah that's a podcast so if you google soundcloud inside donald trump uh that's uh it's, it's worth listening to but that's my attempt to try to you know uh make sense of mm. of a horrible situation but i mean i think you know i mean an awful lot of comedy throughout the ages you go back to catullus you go back to whoever you want it's it's laughing at how how horrible life can get you know mm. um and that's probably the single most important function of comedy is it takes things that people are frightened of everyday experiences things that we're all frightened of and it shrinks them down to a a manageable size and it says you're not alone you know a lot of people feel like that that's why it's funny, you know, because otherwise, you know, if only one person thought, you know, you couldn't get a laugh out of an audience with something that only one person thought was funny. You ever worried about running out of comic inspiration or sort of comedic... Not till you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Fat chance. <laughs> it's gone. Um, no. Mm. Uh, no, because the, the, because it, the reservoir is... You lot <laughs> and me, you know, it's just like um, there is always stuff, you know, um, and there are always stories. You know, we are the storytelling ape, aren't we? We, 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 you know, we express ourselves through stories. We, we're fascinated by them. So, um, no, I mean, there are days when I feel less funny than others, uh, like today, um, <laughs> but. Um, no, I mean, I don't. I try not to worry about it. I mean, what what makes you laugh then? What what sort of sense of humour have you got? 
Um, lots of stuff. I mean, I am, you know, I come from, I, looking back, you know, my family, I had a lot of funny uncles and aunts, you know. And in our family, the way you expressed love and affection was just to take the piss out of somebody. <laughs> that was how you did it, you know. And um, I remember my friend Matthew <laughs> came round to visit, me and him went round to visit my dad one day. And um, as we left the building, he said, he looked a bit shaky. He said, I can't believe the way you talk to your dad. I said, what? He said, well, no, all that stuff. And, and that was how, um, you know, I mean, I'm a middle-class product of, of working-class parents. And I think, you know, working-class Londoners, that's... I mean, that's what is so ludicrous about EastEnders, you know, because if you were going to write down the qualities of EastEnders, you know, if someone says, what are the qualities? Number one, for me, I would put funny. And yet, when has there ever been <laughs> someone in EastEnders who cracks a joke or sees the funny side of anything? They're all going around because they've buried a body in the garden, you know, <laughs> and, or they've all got alcoholism problems, you know. And um, so I think I grew up in an environment where it was kind of in doubt to a joke, you know, and I think that that was... Um, that was a big influence. I must ask you about you and a guy because I yeah. think it's practically unique to have a partnership in the writing and in the direction and perhaps the production as well. I don't know. So how do you work? To, do you work separately or do you get together or how does it work? Well, we do a lot of talking mm -hmm. and we make a lot of tea and eat a lot of biscuits and we... Um, usually we will, you know, we'll map out characters and storylines. And in the course of doing that, we kind of semi-improvise dialogue and we take notes and then say it was an episode of Outnumbered. Um, once we've got a shape and a structure and some set pieces, then one of us goes away and writes up the first draft of that one while the other one does the first draft of the next episode. But when we come back from that moment on, we, we write line by line together and we work on the principle that to stay in something has got to get past both of us so there's a kind of quality control and we we uh i think we allow ourselves um we, we devise this thing where we're allowed one free joke per series so we're allowed one joke that if the other one goes oh, i'm not sure about that that's one in six shows You've just got to pray that it works, though, because if you, the one you've put in dies, then that's embarrassing, you know. So, um, so, um, so and then we just redraft and redraft and we tighten and we shorten and we, you know, and it's just a process of constant reevaluation. And do you ever disagree about a, a joke or well, a line? Have or? you seen the size of him? What? <laughs> yes, he's a big lad. Ten. We do tall. disagree sometimes. <laughs> We've never had any real roused you know we've never gone to bed angry we don't go to bed by the way <laughs> yes, would you like to rephrase that but the funniest one the funniest one actually he said tonight uh neil, neil pearson who played dave in drop the dead donkey brilliantly mm. there was a, a an episode where where he had slept with uh hayden gwynn's character and he had foolishly told someone in the office and she was angry that he'd done that. And there was a moment where uh, somebody says, oh, Alex seems to be okay with that. And she marched, she strides across the office past 
Neil as Dave, and as she went past, she very deftly stapled a piece of paper, which I think said Pratt or something, to his chest, right? So I said to the guy, oh, that's not going to look very real, is it? He said, yeah. The guy said, yeah, why? I said, well, that's the sternum, isn't it? How would you staple something there? That'd be really hard. I said, in fact, it must be really hard to staple anything to a human body. Anyway, this argument got more and more heated. <laughs> and anyway, to cut a long story short, guy ended up stapling a piece of paper to his thigh. <laughs> and he went, he went, oh, like that. And he went, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and um, there was this little rose of blood <laughs> appearing. And I said, no, fair enough, guy. You've proved it. That it stays in. <laughs> It stays in, and it did. But I think we did it with um, double-sided tape. I don't think we did. I don't think we used the real staple on Neil, because we learnt our lesson. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was. Uh, How much does sort of political correctness has it affected your things that you can write about and laugh at? Have you had to sort of censor yourself ever, or? I'm not a huge fan of the term political correctness because it's such a blanket expression you know I mean, you you always have questions of taste uh and ultimately the writer has to be you know people say to you you know where do you draw the line and, and the answer is well i don't know but i know the line when i see it you know and it depends on so many things on context on character um stuff like that i think there is a a danger at the moment there's a kind of new piety uh abroad um whereby you have this nonsense of things like trigger words you know um whereby you're not even allowed to mention uh, even certain ideas or whether this in somehow the word of it so like the word is the thing it's uh offensive in some form the classic example would be um i remember um when jeremy clarkson uh made a um you know, slightly ill-judged joke, but not very serious. Uh, it was the day of the public sector worker strike, and he was on the one show, and rather foolishly, the one show presenters asked him his opinion. And he actually started off saying, well, I love it because the roads are empty today. <laughs> but then he said, but in the interest of balance, I suppose I ought to say something a bit more reactionary. So he said, so in my opinion, the, the, work, the, striking, the uh, public workers on strike should be taken out and shot. Um, and... It was 25,000 people complained to Ofcom. And nearly all the complaints were along the lines that um, children were watching and could have been frightened. So that's 25,000 people who don't know the difference between a child and a moron, you know. <laughs> because the child would have seen the presenters laughing. They would have seen the silly man in the silly trousers was obviously a funny, you know, figure nobody took seriously but then the, the, there was one even worse than that there was a union official who said that Jeremy Clarkson needs to understand that gun crime is a huge problem in this country <laughs> and he thought what as if you know th this approach to language that, that there's that, that it's not figurative you know that there's no such thing as context or ambiguity or irony you know if that were true if that if language were just literally a literal entity you know, then every time a hungry person said, oh, I could murder an Indian, that would be <laughs> carnage, carnage in Southall. 
and that's not racist, <laughs> you know. But so it, it is a it is a worry in that that, that you worry there's a generation of script editors mm. whose first reaction to a word on the page go, oh no, we don't want to go there, you know. So, but so far you haven't suffered too much from that kind of from censorship. No, I mean we've had rows. Mm -hmm. We've had rows with broadcasters, and some we win and some we lose, but. No, I, I can't pretend that my life has been raging against the censors, no. How much did you enjoy being on your own with the book when you were writing it? Did you miss the sort of companionship of actors and colleagues? And well, I didn't really kind of shut myself away in that. Most of the time, there were little bursts of solitary writing, but a lot of the time I was you know, also doing a TV show or a radio show. So, you know, I've never... I've never had the full kind of isolated experience. You know, I haven't gone and lived on an island off the coast of Scotland. Although, interestingly, we do go to St. Well, exactly, in the yes. Book. But, um, you know, I, 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 um, and when I started at radio, because it, it was always so crowded, you, you d there was a writer's room. I tended not to use that because you'd open the door and it would just be a wall of cigarette smoke and people using the phones to ring Australia, which is what, <laughs> times have changed a bit. Um, but you would end up either nicking a producer's office, if there was a, a producer who hadn't come into work, and there were quite a lot of those, <laughs> particularly after lunchtime. Um, so you'd kind of squat or borrow this, or I can remember sitting on the stairs mm. quite often. So I've never had solitude and I don't need solitude to write and Guy Jenkin um, you'll probably see him if you go around London and look in all the Pret-a-Manger branches you'll find Guy <laughs> producing you know a classic piece of comedy in the corner just in a branch of Pret-a-Manger with his staple machine handy in case of now he he's a bit fearful of staplers now I notice <laughs> if ever I just want to calm him down I just put the stapler there now he uh, yeah. Now you're very far-sighted, Annie, because you must have known you were going to be in Edinburgh to promote the book, because there's at least one scene in Edinburgh. There's one scene in the Outer Hebrides, yes, Paris, and St Kilda, and there's a passing reference to Glasgow in your description of the character Mac, who is a voice so Glasgow you can smell the sticky pub carpet. <laughs> now, do you want to sell your? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to change that line now? Or was that for Edinburgh tastes as opposed to Glasgow ones? Yeah. Now, Glasgow would have a teak floor or something, wouldn't it? Uh, but were there many Glaswegians in? Yeah. Yeah, I love Glasgow. <laughs> I do. I do love Glasgow. I mean, Mac, who is... I mean, I did want to write about male friendship. And, and Mac, who is uh, Kevin's friend, who is a very, very good friend, but he's also a rather chaotic... Uh, character and um i mean we come to sounds like i'm trying to curry favor now mm -hmm. we me and my wife we can come into scotland uh, my my wife's family are from nairn uh that's ashes the bakers if ever you go if ever you want a bun in nairn <laughs> that's the and so we've been going to the highlands of scotland uh since we started going out every year and you know so uh i always try and write in fact we wrote a whole movie set in Scotland. Partly we just wanted an excuse to go to Scotland. But <laughs> but when we were doing the recce for that movie, and some, some of you may have seen it, but we went around all the beaches in Scotland in February. Uh, 
and we went to the beach at the east of Tillingham, is it? Uh, east mm. of Edinburgh. Do you know, I've never had an experience like that. We were standing on the beach trying to look at the view that the camera would have out to sea, and it was so cold, it was minus seven or eight, that the, the sea was the froth, the foam of the sea was being turned into ice by the wind. So we were being hit by all these little bits of ice. So I'm standing with the location manager and she's going, yeah, this is out, 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 out. This is a, <laughs> this is a really, out, out, out. It's quite a spectacular, very convenient for, out. and we had, to, we had to turn around. This was our location recce, right? We turned around like that and we talked, well, would it work? Well, where would we park the crew? You know, well, yeah, okay. But it is a great view, isn't it? And we turn around and go, yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, um, but yeah, it was great, and I've got to work with Billy Connolly. So, what about the future? Do you want? Do you intend to write more novels? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I intend to do Good. lots of things. <laughs> I don't think I'll be allowed to do them all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would love to write. Um, yeah, I've got loads of stories in my head um, and loads of voices. In any other walk of life, that would be mental illness. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it's just getting somebody to say yes is always the hardest bit. I suppose one think back to old Harry's game, of course, the mm. radio series in which you played old Nick himself. Was yes. That, was that another, you know, tr uh, you could sort of criticise the, the things you wanted to attack. You could just stick them in hell and give them a hard, a hard time. Yeah, well, I think it's certainly true that if you're playing Satan, if you're writing the character of Satan, He's somebody, he's not going to worry about what people think, <laughs> you know. So he, he is quite outspoken and he can be transgressive and say things that maybe you couldn't give to, to other characters. But I've enjoyed playing Satan. It was a bit of a worry that I've enjoyed playing Satan so much. But, um, yeah, it's been a... But they were, they were like little moral episodes, weren't they? Yeah, they were like uh, philosophical mm, debates, yeah. They're quite hard to write, actually, because you've got to have a proper kind of uh, argument mm. at the centre of them, you know, and uh, I was lucky to have an, uh, lucky enough to have a wonderful actor called James Grout, yes. who played the professor, who was the kind of voice of humanistic reason, you know, and... Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great show to do. And the fans are, are really committed as well. And they're lovely. They are lovely. They can be a little bit over-enthusiastic. I, um, I was at Oxford Circus one day, waiting to cross the road, and it was being leafleted by the Nation of Islam. I don't know if you remember the Nation of Islam. They, um, in fact, their leader, Louis Farrakhan, was banned from entering the UK because he was seen as too dangerous. And they're very distinctive. They're usually very tall. They wear these sort of tonic, shiny blue suits, and they have uh, shiny bow ties, blue bow ties. In fact, the, the great Linda Smith used to call them the nation of Frank Muir. <laughs> <laughs> and there are two of these guys handing out these leaflets, and I'm sort of sandwiched between them, waiting for the, the green man to cross. And they're handing out these leaflets calling for Sharia law and a, a global caliphate, and I'm just minding me on business. And a white van drives past, and it slows just at the junction, slows down, and the driver leans out of the near side driver's window and calls to me and goes, Oi! Satan! <laughs> and then drives off. <laughs> and um, 
so I feel these two guys look down at me and I kind of look up and like an idiot I go I'm not really sorry <laughs> and they're just staring at me you know and uh, anyway luckily the I heard the beep of the green man and <laughs> I was across there in a few Lime seconds dangerous dangerous life yeah yeah have you I mean I don't perhaps earlier on in your did you do much stand-up Andy live comedy um I did sketches, you know, I, I did, I, I appeared in review at university, I was at Cambridge, I, I was in Footlights, I was in something called Kules, which started off doing shows in prisons and old people's homes and stuff like that, but then we would do commercial reviews to raise money, because it was a charity, so, so I started doing sketches there, and I did a bit of performing, and then when I started out as a writer, for the first seven, eight years or so, I was predominantly writing, but we did, I did used to get up and do a bit, mm. like there would be smokers, I'd get up and just do a comic monologue or something, um, and then, oddly, I, I, I used to do the warm-up for sitcoms, um, Partly because I was murder in the box, you know, the control box. And I used to pace up and down in like a caged animal and drive everybody nuts. So in the end, it was suggested to me <laughs> that maybe I might like to have some other role mm -hmm. on show day. Um, so I did the warm-up, which was quite useful because if you know the show and you're doing the warm-up, it's actually easier than having some guy you just brought in to do it. So... And some nights, uh, warm-up's quite hard because you, you mustn't be killingly funny. You don't want to wear the audience out. You want to be laughing at the scenes. But you've got to sort of socially, you've got to be quite skillful in terms of judging the mood. So I suppose that was a form of stand-up. So I did that quite a lot. Mm. Great. Um, anyway, I think it's high time we had the lights up. Yes. We had some... Have a look at you. Have a look at you. Oh, my God. Oh, what a fine audience. Some of the best-looking audiences. We have a couple of mics ready there's, to take... There's a young person in row seven. Can we have them... <laughs> Can we have them removed, please? <laughs> Just sneaked in. Hands up, please, ladies and gentlemen. What? You're all stunned into silence, surely not. No. I don't believe it. Come, come on. <laughs> yes, well done. Well, <laughs> they're only shy. This is a question about my tax return. <laughs> <laughs> Do I look like a tax man? No. no. Okay. Uh, that, that film you talked about, I saw the other day with Billy Connolly, and it made me laugh a lot. And one of the characters in it says something like, we're all more or less ridiculous. Yes. But what matters is that we love each other or care for each other or something. And all of the stuff you've done is imbued with a kind of humanity that is sometimes lacking in other stuff that one sees on telly and right. listens to on the radio. And I'm just wondering, where does that come from? What, my humanity? Well, no. <laughs> no. That, that, that kind of consciousness. I don't know. Because uh, it, it is quite, it is very, even when on Have I Got News For You, even when people are taking the piss out of people, you're yeah. doing it with a kind of, I don't know. Am I? Yeah, you are with a uh, with with. This is a bit like asking a centipede how he walks, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm beginning to regret asking. No, no, no. <laughs> the poor I mean, man. I'm very, very. Uh, it's really nice that you you feel that way. I I mean I'm not conscious of 
you know, I write what I write, or I know the scene you mean. It's the scene, and Billy Connolly gives that speech. He says, we're all, we're all ridiculous in our own way. And it's made more beautiful by the fact that Billy's voice is astonishing, the, the music inside Billy's voice. And, and I actually was about eight feet from him when we were filming that, and I, it was quite emotional, I found it. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, um, well, you write about human frailty, I suppose, and um, so you'd have to be a bit of a bastard to... Uh, Completely, I think it was it. Swift said, "I, I love humans, but despise humanity, or something." There was a quote, and I think that's the position of quite a few writers. You know, they like people; it's just they don't like them. They don't like organised people, you know. And uh, I think I think I feel the same way about religion. You know, I mean, I'm perfectly. People can believe what they want to believe. That's that's fine. It's only when it gets organised and starts imposing itself on other people. So, but thank you. That's a really nice thing to hear thank you that's the one of the great things about this job is if i was an accountant people aren't going to come up to me and go i love those numbers you do <laughs> now more questions comments ah yes hand hand up just at the end of the row here oh yeah sorry sir ladies first we'll come to you sir is there anything you've done that you're particularly more proud of than than the other things the myriad other things you've done um that's always uh, difficult because it, it's a bit like being asked to name your favourite child in a way. You know what I mean? I, I, I love... Um, I mean, you tend to be in love, for one of it, with the thing you're doing. You know, the thing you're writing, the thing... Particularly if you're at that stage where you're exploring it and it's starting to take shape. Um, but, you know, I've been really lucky. I mean, I, it's, it is literally decades now 30 years more since I worked on something that I didn't want to be working on you know when I started out you know I kind of wrote for everybody you know including some great comics like Les Dawson and some less great comics you know and <laughs> some of those jobs you know I thought mm, in an ideal world I wouldn't be doing this but that, I was really lucky. That, for me, ended probably in the mid-80s. And since then, you know, I've worked everywhere. Every job I've ever done It's because I've wanted to be there. And every piece I've ever done, I thought, I really love doing this piece. The only thing, I suppose, that was really important was making the transition into producing and directing. Um, because there was a little period um, where, where I was writing, but writers weren't kind of welcomed in in those days. Um, you were expected to hand it in and go away. Well, I'm, not, I'm too opinionated to do that. You know, I can't do that. And the person who actually said to me I should get involved in directing and producing was Hal Bennett, who passed away yeah. um, a few days ago. And Hal actually said, you should cut out the middleman. You know, you know how it should be done. He said, why do you give it to someone who, who, who you have to explain how it should be done to? I mean, we were very lucky. When we did Drop the Dead Donkey, we had found a brilliant director called Lydia Oldroyd. And she was on our wavelength, and she was very creative in, in, in terms of how 
she'd shoot it and she was adventurous and and that for a while was a perfect arrangement but then very sadly we lost Liddy she passed away and then then after that me and Guy either together or we we just do it ourselves so um so sorry it's a long-winded answer no no I haven't got one particular favorite the one that I get stopped the most about is old Harry's game that oddly although radio course does have big audiences but that's the one that people most often stop me about thank you now hand up here in the front row this gentleman here i believe that outnumbered relied heavily on improvisation yeah i'm intrigued i'm not giving them back the money if that's <laughs> <what they're asking. laughs> there's the thought i i'm intrigued how you script right for <laughs> okay well there were, a you keep it there were a few, okay, now it can be told. <laughs> there were a few kind of legends and myths about Outnumbered, which came partly from the fact that that was the naturalism was the thing that the, the, the writers and critics all latched onto, because it did, you know, it's hard to remember now, but when it came out, it did look extremely natural compared to most children you see on TV or in dramas or in films. They're standing in a particular place where they've been told to stand, and they are looking at the adult. They're looking at the adult, and they're talking to the adult while looking at the adult. You will never see that in nature. <laughs> you, you look at a small child, you, the adult, are the least interesting thing in that room. <laughs> so that was just one example, you know, in Outnumbered. Ramona, the, who played Karen, the little girl, she was usually drawing. We'd give her the choice. We'd say, what do you want to do in this scene? She'd say, draw. So we would do the scene and we would, and she would draw. We would, we would give her a pricey of the scene. Say, your mum's going to come in. She's going to say that. You're going to say this. So she would say a version of what we told her, but sometimes she customised it. But for, for her, it was about the drawing. So when we did, I think we were on the second day of filming, and she was sitting there, she was drawing, we did one take, and then we were about to do a second take, and the PA, who was a lovely lady, continuity PA, went forward and she said, Ramona, um, could you just pick up uh, the blue pencil? And Ramona looked at her and said, the blue, well, I've got the yellow pencil. She said, yes, but the last one that we just did, you had the blue pencil. And Ramona went, well, that's because I was doing the sky. <laughs> and, and the PA said, yes, but, but you were holding the, we need you holding the yellow pencil. She said, well, I was doing the sky. Uh, I'm doing the sun now. So that's yellow. Can't have a blue sun. And um, anyway, so in the end, we, we just stepped in and said, don't worry about it. So if you watch Outnumbered... <laughs> Ramona's pencil changes colour about every 20 seconds. And, and nobody's ever noticed it. Um, the way we did it was we wrote, there are scripts. And the scripts bear an uncanny resemblance to what got said. <laughs> However, there were two things. One was, we, didn't, we never told the kids what the script was. You know, we didn't tell, them, didn't tell them the story or anything. Literally, we would get them beside the set, we'd say, right. Your dad's going to come in. He's a bit cross about this. He's going to... And we would... Kids remember sequences extremely well. Uh, particularly age five and six. They're like... The, they're like computers. 
So they would they would pretty much always remember the sequence, but they would customize it. You know, it would come out in their own words. Um, so that so it felt probably more improvised than it was in those scenes. But there were scenes where we would just give them a starting point and let them, and we would say to them, you know, do you what? Do you want any ideas? And depending on how they were feeling, if they were feeling very confident, they go, no, just let me do it. And if they were, sometimes they go, yeah, yeah, all right, well, your ideas. And then you give them ideas, and quite often you would hear back a version, something similar to what you told them, but it would come out in an extraordinary way. But there were bits that, I mean, there was one I remember where Karen is talking about how she thinks the legal system should work. Did you? I don't know if you saw that one. And she felt that criminals should be put in a hole in the ground with a grate and have hot soup poured over them. <laughs> now, we didn't give her that. that. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the thing, and then it was edited, you know. Uh, but the, um, I mean, a classic example of how a child's mind works that you couldn't write was... <laughs> we said to Ramona, uh, she, Ramona had a pair of fairy wings that she was very attached to. So Karen was being a fairy in this episode. And we said, right, when you go up, in this scene, you're going to be playing on the landing. And what we didn't tell her was that, that Daniel, who played Ben, who'd grown attached to the Hoover nozzle, <laughs> was going to leap out and shoot her. And Guy, who used to brief Ramona, said, "If, if, da if Ben appears, and you know, just feel free to argue with him." That's pretty much what he said. And then I said to Dan, "I want you to surprise Ramona. I want you to shoot her with your and uh, if she resists, you know, you argue with her." So, Ramona <laughs> cut the camera in position. Ramona goes, Dan leaps out and shoots her and says you're dead and she says no I'm not she says you are I've just shot you it's a machine gun I've just shot you and they started arguing about whether you can shoot a fairy <laughs> um, and there is a line in that where Ramona says you can't shoot a fairy you can't shoot because I wouldn't let you because you see if you tried to shoot me she said I would fly down your throats uh, with, uh, let me get this right, I'd tie, try down your throat, make myself tiny, fly down your throat, and then I'd chop up your bones with a tiny big axe. <laughs> and that phrase, I remember me and Guy discussing it after saying we would never have written that. And that is, it's perfectly logical. What she means is, the axe is, uh, in relative terms, is tiny, but it's big compared to me as a tiny miniaturized fairy. But I don't think we would have... And the other thing that we did that, that you know, normally in TV you edit ruthlessly because time is king. So, you know, when people hesitate, you, you edit it out, or if they stumble, you edit it out. We didn't, we left an awful lot in. So there were moments where, particularly Ramona or Daniel when they were five and six, you know when a kid starts to tell you a story and they say, and the thing was, the man came in and, 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 and he said, and then they kind of go back to the beginning again. And, and the man came in. He said, the man came in and we didn't edit 
those out. We, we the moments where the child resets themselves. So we left it. So that's, but it was ninety five percent written, you know, because I always, I know the BBC send out spies. <laughs> if I said it was thirty percent written, that's seventy percent of my script fee goes <laughs> straight back. You, straight back. You never know who might be in the audience listening. No, I don't. <laughs> anyway, some more questions, ladies and gentlemen. Hand up there. Yes, here comes the mic. Andy, politically, we're in very interesting times. In fact, I think there's a rich harvest for political satire out there. When are we going to get another drip, drop the dead donkey? Well, it would be hard to do drop the dead donkey now because we satirised uh, popular news coverage by creating a station where where, bad, where, where taste went out the window <laughs> and, and everything was pushed to an extreme. That's reality now. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so it wouldn't be easy. Um, you know, I'm sure somebody somewhere will probably do a, a piece set inside a, a news station again, but, um, you know, I think the world, is, the, the media, the world of news media is so brightly coloured now and so intense and constant, you know, that it's, it never stops, you know, um, that I think uh, if you were going to try and capture the relentlessness of that now, you know, and create space for characters to breathe in it, it wouldn't be easy. So, uh, um so I don't think we'll be... Maybe bring it back as a musical. <laughs> On ice. On ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Neil can skate. We'll do that. Um, yeah, that would be good. Fun, some final questions? Yes, a hand up there. Bang in the middle of the row. Here comes the mic. Andy, um, of your many performances in panel shows, which do you enjoy playing in most and why? Uh, well, I enjoy them all. Uh, they're, they're, it's a great, it's a great contrast for me. You know, you're writing just to to go and lark around, which is sort of what it is. I know that doesn't sound very professional, but at one level, it is. Like, I mean, I, you know, people say, "Oh, do you get prep and stuff like that?" I, I mean, I like to go in with maybe three good jokes in my head about the main stories. Um, on have I got news for you? I go in. And if I know I've got them in my head, they're, they're like my comfort blanket. And I may or may not get to say them, depending on how the conversation runs. But, that, um, but after that, it's a bit like doing a jazz session, I suppose. And the great thing about panel shows is, you know, only one of you has to be funny or interesting at any given moment. You know, so once you remember that, I think it's quite easy to enjoy them. But... Um, Probably the purest is QI, because QI, you literally turn up, you know, you haven't been watching the week's, week's news or anything, you literally turn up not knowing where that conversation is headed. So um, that's the purest, because you, you just don't think about it. You just go in and, at least I don't. There were rumours of a comedian who insisted on knowing everything that Stephen Fry was going to talk about, but I suspect... He was disappointed, but um, 
but that's you know that um so that's the freest if you like um so but they're they're all good fun to do i mean i think there's a another conversation about whether the tv channel should be colonized by quite so many of them they're quite cost efficient so broadcasters like that's cheap uh so so broadcasters like them for that reason but i think there would be a danger of you know i mean i get sick of the sight of myself when i'm blipping you know because stations like dave you know that have wall to wall and i just think oh give give the people a break for god's sake and then you see yourself and you've got hair and uh you know uh but no, they're great to do, and, and on a good night, you know, it's a cracking evening. I think I'll give one last question, ladies and gentlemen, before we adjourn. Yes, hand up there. Last question. Last. That'd be good. <laughs> no pressure. Your um, sense of humour and your writing is very English, British. Do you reckon that the Americans get it, or... Because I think some of their... Comedies are, um, don't really, or our comedies don't go over to America very well. Um, I don't know. I've never really had the opportunity to find out. Um, I mean, I grew up loving some American comedy. I mean, Bilko was like one of my first comedy gods. You know, I think, um, I think it probably would travel. Um, Drop the Dead Donkey got shown, I think, on sort of public service broadcasting. Outnumbered, interestingly, they've they've made two pilots of Outnumbered. But and they were both fine, but they were like any other domestic sitcom because their studio system they couldn't trust. They had a read through on the first one, which is like the polar opposite of what we do. We never even show the kids the scripts. You know, the idea of making the kids read the script through beforehand um but i don't know i mean I, I write with an american i write with an american called jay tarsis in fact he's coming over next week and, and we're writing we wrote a, a sitcom for radio called revolting people which was set in the american war of independence and i played a a one-legged one-eyed <laughs> one-armed one-eared <laughs> red coat soldier and and he played the shopkeeper who had to billet me, you know, to put me up. Um, and I, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't find any real differences. You know, we, we fundamentally we laugh at the same things. But I think it's more, I think to, to get to the mass audience in America, you know, that Midwest audience is, is maybe quite hard for, for British humour. But um, I don't feel properly quite, I haven't had a hit in America, so I don't know. I could easily say, oh, it's just that I'm too sophisticated for them. <laughs> but I, I suspect that isn't true. I mean, interestingly, how things travel, what we did on our holiday, the, the movie with Billy Connolly, just took off like a rocket in Spain. <laughs> Seriously, me and Guy went to a festival at Valladolid. We won the People's Choice. We, we got there and um, they said, oh, can you go do an interview? with an interpreter, we said, yeah, we're up. I said, well, what is this? I said, it's the news. I said, what, what, local? No, national news. 
and we were on national news talking in English about this movie. But for some reason, some element of the film's sensibility just struck a massive chord with them. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's a really odd area, you know, how national characteristics vary. But but I love. I mean, you know, I love Better Call Saul. I love Mad Men and. You know, these are all richly funny shows. But uh. Well, on that note, I have to bring today's proceedings to a close. Andy will be signing copies of this book yes. in the next door at the signing area. Out that door, turn left and left again. Congratulations, Andy. On right, You've written a real terrific page-turner, and I look Thank forward you. to reading more of that ilk and seeing all your TV work and radio work, too. Thanks, Sam. It's been a wonderful session. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Thank you. Andy Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.